I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and this is Podcast Playlist. Have you ever been scrolling through Instagram and come across a person with millions of followers? And as you zoom in on their face, you say to yourself, who is this person? And then as you ponder over whether you've slid into irrelevance because you don't know who they are, the very next post you see is a famous person you recognize and you secretly congratulate yourself as you think, oh, I know them. Well, that phenomenon of celebrity who's and them's is precisely the subject matter covered in the very popular pop culture podcast, Who Weekly. It's a show that, as they put it, tells you everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Who Weekly is created by hosts Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber, and as well as hosting and often editing the show, both Lindsay and Bobby are culture writers, and they're here now to talk and tell us more about the show and to share some of their favorite podcasts. So welcome Lindsay Weber and Bobby Finger to the show today. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for being here. So I hope I describe that well enough off the top, but I'm wondering if you can explain the difference between the who's and them's as you believe it to be. The base level version of this uh, that we've, I think we've been saying since day one is the who's are the people who you see. I mean, when we started it, it was more like on tabloids at the grocery store, but now it's when you're scrolling through your feeds. The who's are the people you see in your feeds everywhere and you say, who's that? And the them's are the people you see in your feeds and you just go, oh, them. That's that's the binary. That's all it is. And obviously, there are like nuances there. Some people are who's to pe- some people. Some people are them's to some people and not others. But like, we try to make it as broad as possible on the show. Okay. Well, to help illustrate this concept, I prepared a little quiz for you too. Hope that's okay. I I know on your show you'll often take lists of celebrities mm-hmm. and rank them in order of fame on a who to them scale. So I thought we could do that with some semi-obscure Canadian musicians. Okay. Okay, so the list is Sean Mendes, Tesher, Carly Rae Jepsen, Tate McRae, Paul Anka, Grimes, and Ruth B. I truly don't know who Ruth B is. <laughs> Bobby, do you? I don't know who Ruth B is either. <laughs> Bader Ginsburg, no idea. <laughs> do you want me to tell she's she's like an Instagram Singer, TikTok, perfect. Instagram singer. Perfect. She's the okay. whoiest then. That's perfect. I was I was afraid you were going to be like, she's one of our greatest Canadian icons. She <laughs> she came up with Celine. I was going to be so upset. So I would say Ruth B is the whoiest. This is a, a very good mix. Good job. It's a it's we're really getting on all lots of levels here. Like Paul mm-hmm. Anka, I'm loving that. That mm-hmm. really throws us for a loop because that's a generational who them divide. I would yep. argue. Thank you. Uh, yes, I know who Paul Anka is, but I could not name you a song. Bobby, could you? 
No, and that's why I'd make him second to second to lowest. Second to oh. lo- you're putting him below Tate <laughs> no, McRae. No, 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 no. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. That that he has name recognition, even though even if I can't name any of the songs. You and know that's why he important. has name recognition? Because he they named their dog Paul Anka on Gimel Girls, and I think oh. a lot of people will know that. <laughs> okay. Well. Tesher, I want to put at second to who he is because I remember we did an episode about him because mm-hmm. he's Jalebi baby. Mm-hmm. Good um, memory. Uh, I would say he's second. I, I would say I would and say then, then Tate him. McRae. Yeah, because uh, I would say then Tesher. Then the problem is right now Tate McRae is trending above Carly Rae Jepsen, so I'm just it's a little bit the, the rays are neck and neck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Both right, Ray Carly Ray Jepsen. Carly Ray Jepsen gets the sort of residual attention right. from Call Me Maybe, but okay. has she ever really had a hit that big again? No. Also, if I don't fine. put Paul Anka above Carly Ray Jepsen, I feel like I, God will strike me down. You know, <laughs> like that just doesn't fe- seem right. <laughs> so we're going Ruth B. Tesher, yes. Tate McRae, uh, and then are we doing Carly Ray Jepsen? Sh- sure. Then maybe Paul Anka. Oh God. Then maybe Paul Anka. Then then Grimes. Grimes. Then Sean Mendez. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. This is tough. That's tough. And Grimes only. I think. I think if you took if you took Elon Musk out of the conversation, I don't think Grimes would be no. much higher than Ruth B. Honestly, <laughs> like Grimes was such a niche artist for so long, and it's True. Elon Musk that made her notable beyond that very niche genre. Okay. Well, you know what? I think you did a great job on that list because I was I'm very (laughs) surprised that you had name recognition on Paul Anka, frankly. So good job. Um, Hopefully that will help our listeners who might not know your show get a sense of the the kinds of people you talk about on Who Weekly. It's Mm -hmm. not always Paul Anka excitement (laughs) on Who Weekly. There are others, but I think that will give you a sense. So I also want to just add a clip now so we can listen to a bit of it. This is from one of your call-in episodes where listeners submit their questions. Let's take a listen. Okay. Settle this debate between me and my boyfriend. Um, We collectively think Simon and Garfunkel is a them, but definitely Gen Z does not know who they are. Um, And my boyfriend thinks Paul Simon is a them and our Garfunkel is a who and I would say singularly they are both who's and Simon and Garfunkel would also be a who to Gen Z because I consulted two 16 year olds um, my niece and my 16 year old co-worker and they did not know who Simon and Garfunkel is they had never heard of Miss Robinson and the only song they knew was the sound of silence from the movie Trolls. So there you have it. Crunch, crunch. There you have it. There you crunch, have crunch. it. The the young people, the the teens, don't know who Simon and Garfunkel are. Honestly, it's fine. You don't get that. It's like it's like it's Kate Bush. It's Kate Bush and Stranger Things. They're not going to become relevant until they're featured in some sort of other culturally relevant thing. You know. I guess. To us, though, I'm just like to us though. I know. I think you don't everyone... know about Art Garfunkel. <laughs> Paul Simon, them, Simon and Garfunkel, them. I still feel sort of like Art Garfunkel's a who with them name recognition. Well, he's kind of iconically who-y. Like that's yeah. his like whole. He's the like, other one. Yeah. His whole demeanor. He was always the other one. He was always mad about it. His name is Art Garfunkel. Sorry. Like he just wasn't the girl. He wasn't the star. He wasn't I mean, the he was girl. He mad about it. 
<laughs> he wasn't so the girl. he's iconically hooey, even though I think to multiple generations of people, he is a them technically, but he is definitely hooey. He's the hooier of the two. Mm-hmm. As for the young people, I don't expect them to know who Simon and Garfunkel is. That's not surprising to me that they didn't know who Simon and Garfunkel is. When you said that they only recognized the sound of silence because it was in a Trolls movie, I was just like, that's a perfect example of like what culture is when you are that age. You only learn about things when you see them in like the kids movie or the kids show. Right. I'm thinking about like, remember when Pulp Fiction came out? Remember, you know, and all these like old songs mm-hmm. became new again. It's like, this keeps happening. Kate Bush running up that hill, Stranger Things. Like, this is just culture. Like, we cannot be shocked that kids don't know who Simon and Garfunkel are. You know what I mean? But but maybe they will if some old ass person puts it in a movie that strikes their fan- fancy. Yeah. One of my favorite songs of all time, which imprinted on me as a child, is a song from the 60s, the iconic soul song, Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher, because it was on the Operation Dumbo Drop soundtrack. And I love the Operation Dumbo Drop soundtrack. It was filled with soul songs. Yeah, it had like, Your Love Is Lifting Me Higher. It had, um, it had Hang On Sloopy, Sloopy, Hang On. You know that song? Hang On Sloopy, Sloopy, Hang On. Yeah, no, I know that. (laughs) Sounds like Snoopy. Remember the Big Chill soundtrack? Everybody was like, oh my God, the Big Chill soundtrack, which had like, you know, Wider Shade of Pale, the original, oh, not the Amy yeah. Lennox. <laughs> mm-hmm. Procol Harum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, now we're just like showing off. Hi, Bobby Lindsay, Timmy. I am currently at the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo in Denver, uh, Fincy, as it's colloquially called. And the opening speaker was Stedman Graham. Uh, you know, Oprah's husband, and it got me thinking, uh, despite being married to, like, the most famous per- woman in the world, or who was the most famous person in the world at one point, um, he's a little hooey. So, yeah, is he a who? I mean, it's hard to say that Oprah's husband, partner, uh, man, would be a who, but it did just get me thinking. Um, all right, crunch, crunch, me and Greece. To quote the caller, is Oprah's husband partner man Stedman a who or them? I think we've done this before because he's kind of like the iconic like husband that exists yeah. but no one knows what husband he does. Which man. is like mm-hmm. why I think why I love him so much because he he doesn't make a point to tell you what he does. You have to like seek it out because everyone's like Stedman's just here, and it's like, well, he's actually kind of like the CEO guy. Also, like he is a big business guy, but. He is a kind of a who because it's so he is so mysterious in that way. Because Oprah's too big of a personality to like even kind of come up against or alongside. He's a CEO of his own company. He's a CEO of a company with his name on it. And he's a consultant, which could mean anything. I mean, that's what I'm saying. But yeah, he's a who. I don't even think we have to count it down. His art pop could mean anything. His art pop could mean anything. Yeah. Oprah doesn't even know what he does, you know? It's fine. Well, I don't think he... The thing is, he doesn't have to do anything. Here's mm-hmm. That's the thing, right? Like, what does he even have to do? Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about two speakers in this episode, but one iconic speaker that, I mean, she's quite dark these days, so it's annoying to bring her up. But for a long time, the most iconic celebrity speaker in culture mm-hmm. was Caitlyn Jenner. If you'll remember those first seasons of Kardashians, that was Caitlyn's job. Like... 
Caitlin、mm-hmm. was a former Olympian who hadn't actually competed in a long time, but was making good money doing the speaker circuit around the world. And like,、mm-hmm. that's why Caitlin was constantly traveling. That's, I think, the dream for a lot of people when they move on to like another stage in their life, and they're like, I don't really want to do X anymore. Well, it's like inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on. Hi, Lindsay, Bobby, Timmy.、Um, this is kind of like a, a、um, I guess it's kind of like a call about senators being who's and them, but <laughs> is Herbert Hoover a who or a them? I really feel like he's a who. I know he was a president, but I just feel like he's a who.、Um, there's that song about him and Annie, like this. The stage version of Annie, but that's like how I found out about him.、Um, I was young, but still, that's how I found out about him.、Um, so, so maybe the fact that there is a song about him and Annie makes him a dumb. But no, I don't think that's. Yeah, so is Herbert Hoover a who or a them? Um. One of everything really good. Crunch, crunch. I think we've talked about presidents before. I think by default, if you are an American, every president is technically a them, right? Right. Even if you're like forgetful and don't remember like when they were president. Yeah. But also, I think Herbert Hoover iconically was president when the Great Depression started. And that's like the thing, that's the thing I think about with Herbert Hoover. It's like, ooh. And if you know the Annie song, which I don't need to bring up Annie again, but it's not often in the movie versions because it's so depressing because it's about living, living in like Hubertville. Hooverville? But you don't have to slay to be a them. <laughs> you can be a flop <laughs> and also be a them. I just want to say, I just want to put that out there. Do you agree? Yeah. As, as a president? No. I think as anything, yeah, you don't have to slay to be a them. That's、For、what、sure. I'm saying. That's a good point. Right. You don't have to slay to be a them. Herbert Hoover, them. But he didn't slay. That was a clip from the podcast Who Weekly. It's created and hosted by Lindsay Weber and Bobby Finger, who are joining me today on the show. Can I ask you, can you explain the crunch crunch thing? No. <laughs> we can't. Yes, no, yes, we can't. Yes, we can. We can. We can. But we I'm can. just saying, like, can we explain this enigma of something so popular? We, yeah, it came out of kind of nowhere, which was a BB Rexa Lay's potato chip sponsorship <laughs> in which she was asked to write different genres for different types of potato chips. Just one of the funniest s e t u p s Different genres of music for different types of potato chips. And they put a crunch, crunch sound in the songs. And we were like, that's so funny. So we stole it. We put it in the episode like 45,000. Times and then you know th- that crunch crunch was born, yeah. Because so many listeners that call into the show, they have there's like this this who weekly language that has emerged、mm-hmm. within your show, which consists of things like crunch crunch <laughs> and a whole bunch of other things that we won't get into because we, we don't have the time to get into all of them, but it's very fascinating. The joy of listening is finding your own favorite sign off, I think, and and、yes. which, what, what's, what really speaks to you. This caller ended with one of everything really good, which is the tagline of Hailey Bieber's skincare line. Which,、right. I, you know, you'll notice that people sort of try to strong arm 
uh, sign-offs into popularity. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And that I don't good. know that one of everything really good <laughs> made it to the upper echelon, but it's definitely it's definitely not at the bottom. Okay, so I, I'm really curious. Can we start at the beginning here, and can you tell us how this show came to be? Who who approached who? Was it a joint venture? Like, how did this this come to be? Um, we have been, you know, making silly content online for years now. I would say since like the Tumblr days, it has been mm-hmm. in this format, which is where we're kind of like talking about celebrities online. We're photoshopping, we're whatever. But both of us grew up loving Us Weekly, loving tabloid magazines and writing about celebrities from when we started writing professionally. Basically, what this was first was a newsletter. It was uh, we started this newsletter. It was mostly like Photoshop gags on celebrity tabloid journalism, which was our truly our favorite thing to talk about at that point, apparently. And then, you know, we when podcasts became the new newsletters, which is hilarious because newsletters are back and now you could argue newsletters are the new podcast. I don't know, whatever the circular circular media system that we have here. Um, Somebody approached us and said, you know, this could be a fun podcast. And we were like, what's a podcast? I'm kind of kidding. But we really didn't know how to do it. And then we kind of were like, all right, it it could be fun. And that's why the first episode of Weekly sounds like garbage, because we literally just like kind of got bad microphones and and started talking. And and it really just came from our interest in, you know, reading blogs like, oh, no, they didn't and delisted and uh, uh, pink is the new blog. I'm trying to press Hilton, unfortunately, Laney gossip, all these these fun places where the the humor in them talking about celebrities and we've lost a lot of that. So I'd say uh, who weekly really is us trying to gain it. I'm wondering there just seemed to be a lot more who's than there used to be. So do you feel like we've witnessed like, or we have witnessed already the end of monoculture is, is there any monoculture to be found out there? Taylor Swift and Beyonce. (laughs) Taylor Swift is the monoculture. That's like kind of it. Yeah. And honestly, probably more Taylor Swift. Yeah. Right. But I, I do feel like we've, We've lost monoculture in a in a way, but we also have gained the big pockets of celebrity in places that are right. just not television, which I think people always say monoculture, but they just mean like TV, I think sometimes. Like they just mean like everybody's watching the Super Bowl or something. And it's not that sure, but people still have tens of thousands of, of fans out there. It's just you we have too many places to look. Sometimes we're not seeing them. But the monoculture, yeah, I think I think the monoculture has been, I guess, air quotes dead for many years now you know mm-hmm. I, I think it's not just it's not just television the, the the death of television as we knew it decades ago but like the death of the radio like mm-hmm. everyone's not just listening to the same four stations just look at people spotify rap they're all over the place again with the exception of like taylor swift and beyonce <laughs> yeah. um and selena gomez i just want to <laughs> assure the listeners that are listening to this on the radio we still I'm see you say. and we love you <laughs> It's dead for some, but not for all. I'm talking about music. I'm not talking about this network. I'm talking about Mix 96.1 in San Antonio, Texas. Also, podcasts are alive and well. Let's be clear. They're well. But do you think that we're headed for a future where all famous people are who's? Because there's so many, like you're talking about, there's so, so many different types of media, so many different places where you can find a who and a them are there are there going to be no more thems because we just have so many different I wanna say, brackets i want to say no because i do think that like you know how everything's like oh we're streaming but now we're bundling again but now we're streaming like cable tv is like kind of coming back around everything comes back around so i kind of do feel like it's it's not like all who's from <laughs> here forward i think it'll be mostly who's but i think if anything 
your your Renaissance tour and Eras tour plus Barbenheimer proved that like there's still there's still a desire and there's still a joy in sharing something right. in mass. You know, like people still really relish that opportunity when it comes around. It may just not it may not come around every week like it used to or like mm -hmm. every month. The cycle will be will be a little slower and the experience will be a little rarer. But I I think definitely who's will be the dominant celebrity force. They probably sort of already are. But um, that doesn't mean that there won't be thems in the mix. I think we still mm -hmm. like to all rally around certain people, people and things. People love the monoculture, as it turns out. We're all so devastated it left <laughs> us, which is so funny. Everybody's <laughs> always complaining about where it is. And I think that that is such a funny thing. We used to complain, I guess, about it or only having a few things to watch. Oh. Now we have so many things to watch. We're like, why won't everybody watch TV with me anymore? You know? Okay, well, it's time to dive into your podcast picks. Lindsay, we're going to start with you. Your first pick is a podcast called Celebrity Book Club with Stephen and Lily. What's this show about and why do you like listening to it? Stephen and Lily are two kind of friends of ours who also have a podcast. They talk about celebrity memoirs, something that we have attempted to do um, on our Patreon. And I would argue do not do as successfully as Stephen and Lily. They have such a good sense of humor about it. They do a good job of both giving the book the respect that it deserves, which is, means actually reading it and researching it and quoting it and all of that, but also just being hilarious, which is exactly what I want in a celebrity podcast. So you specifically wanted us to hear the episode about Sheryl Crow's cookbook, If It Makes You Healthy. <laughs> yes. Uh, why, why this one? I mean, all their episodes are really funny, but this is them reviewing a cookbook versus a memoir to me is just hilarious. It because cookbooks really have become memoirs when they're by celebrities, because each each uh, recipe is like, I found this recipe from a monk at the top of a mountain in Taiwan or whatever. And you're like, what? And it's just it's it always has to have this like kind of ridiculous narrative story. It's like, can't you just show me how to make uh, enchiladas or something? But yeah, Cheryl Crow's is really funny because she pivoted to wellness a few years ago and no really noticed and then she, it turns out she had us a full cookbook and the name is unbeatable and it's just it's fantastic okay let's take a listen this is celebrity book club with steven and lily so basically she hired a personal chef after she got breast cancer and well he... no first she talks to a nutritionist rachel. rachel and then rachel puts her in touch with, with chuck. chuck and then chuck and her have a really good bond and i the whole book is a little bit to me like are, are you... they yeah, and like the whole book is just full of photos of him looking like so, so second sexy, husband. Defining second husband and like wearing his chef outfit on her ranch. And it's just very like just the two of them on the ranch. And he's always like, I make caprese's for Cheryl probably 24-7. Yeah. And you're like, damn, I wish I had a man making caprese's 24-7. So he has a pimento grilled cheese recipe in this. And he's like, pimento cheese? Like, you do not have this every day. And it's like, well, obviously I'm not going to eat pimento cheese every day. I've always wanted to make pimento cheese. So the recipe. So you followed the recipe to a tea. I followed the recipe to a tea, though I put a little more heat in it because one of my big takeaways from this book is not enough spices, and I also didn't do it on sourdough. I did it on potato bread to kind of, I guess, honor her Midwestern to Southern heritage. So these have traveled a little bit. Oh, that's fine. So they're this a looks little beautiful. soggy. It's like still warm. Okay, so 
for those of you who can't see, which is everyone. I did this with potato bread. Oh, I love that golden color of the potato bread. And the pimento cheese is pimentos, olive stuff with pimentos, Colby Jack, Gouda, cheddar, mayo. So, and for those of you who don't know, a pimento is like a fire-roasted red pepper. Yes. And you bought it, like, pre-roasted in a jar? Yeah. It's very, like, southern, so you always buy it, like, canned or just in a and jar. And then you stuff that in an olive? And then you like slice the olive, then put the olive in. No, so I bought just pimentos in a can. And then I also bought a bottle that she calls for of olives stuffed with pimentos. Okay. And then you dice this all of that. This is so this book. This book is always just like, get pimentos, then get separate yeah. pimento juice, then get pimento broth. Then boil it for 10 hours. She's obsessed with things marinating, I think, and chilling for far too long than they need to. Oh, I am aware. All okay. right, let's First dive babe. into this. Mm. Mm. Great mouthfeel. Really soft. I love the potato bread. Okay. Mm. It's got just enough kick. The texture is really lovely. I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little bit of that pepper in there, mm-hmm. but it's still got the cheese. It feels melty. I mean, this is delicious. Incredibly well balanced. Not too much stuffing. It doesn't feel like it's overloading the bread. It's not spilling out the sides. You got that a real was a nice, worry of mine because I was like, "There's so much cheese in here. We don't need to like overstuff." You got a nice uneven kind of like crusty char on the this golden brown bread here. Somebody knows how to make a sandwich. I will say. My only fear, I was like, I feel like when I've seen pimento dips, mm. they're more creamy. And I think the reason because Chuck, most pimento cheese dips call for cream cheese. And, and I'm actually shocked. Not. The olives, I'm always really sus about yes. olives mixed with anything else. I love olives like alone, but it's always like they always start to get very weird when you put them with other yeah, things. Yeah, no, and- well, like olives on pizza or like olives mm. and chicken sometimes. You're just like, I don't know if I want that. And I was worried about that too, but I was like, I'm following. This is delicious. Okay, so but how complicated and how long did this take? This took a half hour. Okay, wow. That was the, this was like the quickest recipe. So she suggests pairing this with the tomato soup, which I did make the other Let's night. Let's hear about it. So the tomato soup, she calls... Oh, and she also calls it like shooters because this whole cookbook is so like early 2000s uh, where like every soup is a shooter. Yeah, what's also very 2000s about the tomato soup, there's truffle oil in it. Hmm. There's truffle oil in half the recipes in this book. Half the and recipes. she has that insane tip where she's just like, hey, y'all, I know truffle oil can be kind of a major expense, you know, in these hard times when you're raising two kids and you're a breast cancer survivor. You can make truffle oil last longer by replacing half of it with canola oil. Ew. Isn't that crazy? That's disgusting. By watering down, Water your, down tr- your truffle, truffle oil. Canola oil. Which is also insane because... Rachel's a nutritionist, has a tip where she's like, you better make sure you're buying organic canola oil because like oils are different, which is like... This book is also just heard of organic. So the tomato soup recipe, it calls for Roma tomatoes. Then it calls for a can of diced tomatoes. Then it calls for tomato juice. Then it calls for tomato paste. And you're just like, I get like a little bit of variety, but like, do we need the tomatoes and the canned tomatoes? The canned tomatoes and tomato paste... And maybe tomato juice. Like three can go together. Or maybe the fresh tomatoes, tomato juice. But adding the five is just like with the reader. It was. And so I actually had forgotten to get the diced tomatoes. So then I went to the deli and I got extra more tomatoes. So it was like deli tomatoes Mm. mixed with like Roma tomatoes that were like a little bit juicier mixed with this Big old jug of tomato juice. <laughs> and I'm sure like Chuck, when he talks about shopping, he's always like going to the Nashville farmer's market. Like, yeah. And I imagine they were not 
imagining deli tomatoes. And as I was no, buying like all some rock hard, like gray deli tomatoes. And as I was buying all my ingredients today at 1 p.m. at Sea Town, I was like, Don't think Cheryl Crow's ever seen the inside of a Sea Town. No. How was it? It was good. I did finally eat it at like 1 a.m. And um, yeah. How long did you simmer this soup for? And did you have it in shooter form? Ultimately, did I didn't do shooter. Well, so you cook it in the big pot for like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Then I had to blend it all together and then add in the truffle oil. And then I drizzle more truffle oil on at the end. And did you have truffle oil or did you? No, I had to buy truffle oil. And so ha- now I'm out $12. Okay. And, and I ha- got black truffle, not white truffle. And have you made it last longer by adding in just like Goya canola oil? I doused it with Goya. (laughs) Well, it was good, but it was like so needlessly complicated. Absolutely. It's like the whole point of tomato soup. It's just like you don't need like Campbell's Bloody Mary mix. I wonder about why Cheryl made this book. Like in her mind, she made it like for single moms and like breast cancer survivors and is very like, Women in rock, we can rock this. Yeah. But the style of cooking in this is all like California 2010. I have a personal chef. Yeah. Everything is truffle oil. Everything not... needs to be like marinated for six and then hours. She's being like, but make sure to get organic tomato juice and organic tomato paste and organic Roma tomatoes when you're making this needlessly complicated tomato soup for an hour and a half. That was a clip from the podcast Celebrity Book Club. It's hosted by Stephen Phillips Horst and Lily Murata. Their team includes Darby Masters and Abu Zafar. Okay, Bobby, you're up. The show you picked is called The Secret History of the Estonia. <laughs> sure, normal. Cool, totally, yeah. Yes. Okay, Bobby. <laughs> and, and what's this show about? This podcast is about a shipwreck disaster that I'd never heard of. Uh, until someone asked if I'd heard of the sinking of the Estonia, and I said no, and I read a magazine story about it, and then had to had to seek out as much content as possible, and it just so happens that this podcast had just launched. Okay, and so did you? Do you have a particular interest in shipwrecks? Really, just Titanic. <laughs> you know, I, I have a I have a deep seated interest, as I think most elder millennials, in Titanic, and so. I was just eager to hear about this because it was, I mean, it's a really harrowing and upsetting story. And it's also vaguely like there's a cover up involved, which adds a little intrigue. It it also was one of those podcasts that seemed to seemed like it was going to end with a big reveal that maybe people hadn't heard before. And it sort of did. Uh, I just found it really exciting. And I'm not a big I listen to very kind of chatty culture podcasts as a general rule. So just the sheer novelty of this is one of the reasons it was so memorable and exciting for me. Okay, we're going to listen to some of it now. Here's what you need to know. The Estonia was a passenger ship that sailed the Baltic Sea between Tallinn, Estonia, and Stockholm, Sweden. And it sank during an overnight trip in 1994, and more than 800 people died. In this clip, host Stephen Davis explores the possibility of Russian involvement in the disaster. Let's recap. A Swedish whistleblower confirmed there was a smuggling operation on the Estonia. And so had my intelligence sources. And there was a compelling eyewitness, Sarah, who saw military transports arrive just before the ferry departed that fateful night. Why would someone try to discredit her? To what end? Well, 
To answer that question, we need to look at the way the Estonia tragedy, like many devastating events where questions are left unanswered, has given rise to crazy conspiracy theories. Some of these theories have been adopted by the extreme right, who use the Estonia to further their anti-establishment deep state rhetoric, or by anti-Semitic groups who see global conspiracies in every corner. But many of the most bizarre theories have originated in Russia. One television report claimed that the Russian-Estonian mafia had placed a limpet mine on the hull, using a miniature submarine, to warn the shipping company that it should pay protection money. There was another story that involved Arab terrorists sinking the Estonia on orders from Russian intelligence officers. Some of these stories reflected the tendency of the Russian media at the time to publish or broadcast wild or conspiratorial theories. But they also have the hallmarks of disinformation, a speciality of Russian intelligence services throughout the Cold War, where fake documents and lies were leaked to journalists to embarrass, confuse and influence political debate. The flood of secrets and technology that flowed out of the Soviet Union after it collapsed attracted the attention of a group of senior KGB officers, true believers who mourned the demise of their empire. They wanted to preserve and protect the secrets of the state and became determined to shut down the pipeline sending information to the West. They were known as the Felix Group. Russian newspapers reported the group had formed to assassinate corrupt politicians they blamed for the collapse of the Soviet Union. The group was also said to be targeting KGB officers involved in drug smuggling and other organised crime. A few months after the Estonia sinking, a Felix Group report was sent to media organisations all over the world. It comprised dozens of pages, most of them devoted to linking Chechens to organised crime. Russia was fighting a brutal war in Chechnya at the time. But alongside the anti-Chechen propaganda were allegations about organised crime in Estonia and that Estonia was a transit hub for illicit weapons from Russia to Europe. The report, which I have a copy of, then gave a seemingly detailed account of what had happened to the fairy Estonia. It claimed that their account was based on wiretap conversations. It said the Estonia had two illicit cargoes on board, heroin and cobalt. Cobalt can be a gamma-ray source and highly radioactive. The Felix account said the ferry captain was involved in drug trafficking. A rival gang tipped off customs officers who were waiting in Sweden to seize the shipment and arrest the captain but someone alerted the Estonia and the captain was ordered to get rid of the cargo of cobalt. They tried to dump the illicit cargo via the bow door and accidentally sunk the vessel. It was all very odd. A classic piece of disinformation. Explain the sinking in a way that directed attention away from the state to non-state actors, blackening the reputation of Estonians, sowing confusion, but with a kernel of truth and a warning. We know you are stealing our weapons and smuggling them out on a ferry. An official investigation by the Estonian parliament later concluded the so-called classified Felix report, which appeared in the press, 
is an intentionally misleading document based on erroneous data. In all probability, this report on organised crime was produced by special services of a state unfriendly to Estonia. There's no doubt who they were talking about. Among the early members of the Felix Group, according to my sources, was a junior officer, one Vladimir Putin. When I revealed this publicly, it made headlines in the Swedish newspaper Expressen. Where there was a major disaster, conspiracy theories flourish. Gaps or inconsistencies in official accounts are investigated by legitimate journalists and pursued by survivors and relatives of victims. Questions are asked which governments cannot or will not answer. How better to disguise an actual conspiracy than to surround it with invented conspiracies? The more outlandish, the better. Legitimate questions are then lost among the noise generated by these wild theories amplified and spread by the internet. It all blurs together in the public mind. And it makes the job of real investigative reporters so much harder. If you are trying to spread outlandish conspiracy theories, an eyewitness account like Sarah's is, of course, inconvenient, to say the least. Perhaps you might try to discredit her by suggesting her memories are false. There was one Russian newspaper story from an independent news outlet that caught my eye. It said there were space laser systems on board, stolen from Russia and en route to the West. As we have seen, perhaps that last story is close to the truth. So the Russians may have had very good reasons to produce disinformation about the sinking of the Estonia. From Crowd Network, that was The Secret History of the Estonia. It's hosted by Stephen Davis. Their team includes Samantha Syke and Rory Oscary. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's move on. Uh, Lindsay, I want to double back to you. The next podcast on your list is called Pop Pantheon. What's the premise of this show? So before I explain this show, I also want to say that I'm smart and I listen to smart podcasts sometimes, too. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right now, I'm listening to a podcast about the big dig in Boston, which is fantastic by WGBH. But this podcast that I recommended, I do I did recommend it because I think it's a wonderful companion pod for Who Weekly. It is really in conversation with us all the time because it's hosted (laughs) by our friend, our friend DJ Louie, who's an incredible DJ, but also an incredible podcast host who knows more about music than I think anyone I know, I mean, this guy can like quote billboard 
stats from any year. Like he knows everything about charts or whatever. Um, his show Pop Pantheon is great because he, much like Who Weekly, he created this kind of system where pop stars are on different tiers. And in that system, he's able to have these amazing in-depth conversations with really smart people and, and pop music lovers about uh, different artists and where they fit in the Pantheon. And I think it's sometimes silly to rank things or whatever, but sometimes it just creates an amazing conversation. And uh, I think his show does that so well. You wanted us to hear the episode about Katy Perry. Why that one? Well, this was, a, th- I think, a three-part series or a two-part series. That's how much they had oh, to say about Katy Perry. Yes. Yeah. Uh, where Louis talks to Dan Daddario, who is a journalist at Variety. And Dan is, I would say, one of the biggest Katy Perry apologists. Uh, loved uh, everything she's done, even the stuff that is inarguably bad. But in, in them in conversation, because DJ Louis has his own biases against Katy Perry, is an incredible battle of the wits yes. over Katy's uh, legacy as a pop star and I just think it's an amazing it's an amazing document of what she means to us, especially as as millennials. Mm. OK, so let's take a listen. In this clip, DJ Louis the 14th and guest Daniel Daddario discuss Katie's 2008 single, I Kissed a Girl. Let's talk about I Kissed a Girl in particular. So this is obviously Katie's breakthrough single. What is this song about? How would you describe this record? It's about the concept of rebellion. It's about literally kissing a girl, but one never gets the sense that she is expressing even the tiniest bit of queer desire. It's what's interesting to her is that as the song goes, it felt so wrong, it felt so right. It's that Mm. it's about doing something that would make your parents mad. And I think for that reason, people connected to it, not because it was queer, but because it's just of a piece with the sense of her as kind of like, I did something bad, but it wasn't that bad. But isn't this titillating? Isn't this interesting? Firework, the only time she goes near anything queer is to be affirming and <laughs> glad awards level, like positive. Uh huh. An opposite annoyance, honestly. Like, yeah, oh, oh, certainly. But the impulse to kind of wink at the audience and say, we all do something a little bad sometimes, is very much still there. And reminds me of girls that I knew in high school and college who would hook up with other girls to get guys' attention, you know? And that's really what this song is sort of selling to you, which it was a real concept that I think maybe now we have a better understanding of like where that gets awkward culturally for us. But I think your point about this being more garish and flagrantly controversial feeling is now versus then. Like at that point, I remember being like annoyed by the fact that she thought that this was controversial. Like I remember that being my kind of main reaction to this was kind of just this feeling of, okay, so what you kissed a girl? Like good for you. Exactly. And like, look, there's still lyrics in here that are simply unforgivable. Like you're my experimental game. I mean, I don't know if there's any queer person that like hears that lyric and is not like rolling their eyes to the back of their head. Right. Game. Just human nature. 
there's no queer desire. She doesn't want to kiss a girl. It's just to kind of turn around and giggle with her friends. Exactly. It's just to be like, look what I did. I think the one of the neat tricks of this record as a song and the reason the production is so brilliant. So basically, it just nabs the beat from Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll, the famous new wave song from the 80s. which was such a clever thing on Max and Luke's part to have a foot in rock and roll. It has a giant guitar part to it that leads the song. The song is definitely has elements of rock and roll in it, but feels as though it is essentially leaving behind the since you've been gone, you in your hand sort of just overt pop rock thing. It's a pivot point in that movement. And I think that was also a key to its success. It was providing a way forward for Max and Luke sound and thus for the sound of pop radio at that time that had a foot in the past and a foot in where everything was going. And Katie was providing that linchpin for them. So there's a big storm of things that I think makes this song successful and it's everything we've been talking about to this point and i'll say this she goes for it with gusto everything she sinks her teeth into it's like you believe she's invested even if she's not invested in kissing a girl she's invested in whatever this guy's is like 150 million percent like she's like you want you don't want me to be a christian girl good christian girl anymore like i don't need to be that i will be this yes and it worked i mean this song was a monster this song was everywhere stipulated i didn't like the song but my recollection is i was like oh this girl's here to stay at least for an album cycle because she then spun off multiple more singles that were pretty successful it would be very easy for a song like this to be a total novelty song just given the concept what it's about it's literally a novelty song but she wrote it so hard and was like and i have another thing and another thing and she was extremely entrepreneurial in this time she knew it was her moment and she never stopped it's where that tenacity that kept her moving through all of those adverse situations getting dropped what do they say like success is opportunity meets preparation or whatever like that is katy perry to a t like she was waiting for that moment when that moment came there was nothing that was going to get in her way of like capitalizing on it she was ready to rumble yes so let's talk about the rest of one of the boys which comes out as we said i kissed a girl is a massive number one smash Katy perry is all of a sudden like part of this new generation of up-and-coming pop girlies of this moment rihanna lady gaga they're all having like kind of big breakthroughs at this exact same moment Mm -hmm. let's talk about the rest of one of the boys what is going on musically on the rest of this record so musically it kind of sits between her pre-fame era and teenage dream in the sense that it's this kind of often uneasy mixture of gestures towards Ashley Simpson style pop punk that has been very much defanged. I love thinking about Ashley Simpson as fanged. (laughs) A turn of the dial down. Yeah. And then these ballads that to me are not her strongest, but that are very openly saccharine and unabashedly cheesy in a way that has always been with her, but I think is most pronounced here. And then undergirding it all is this idea that she is at once obviously and overtly sexual and kind of stepping out of whatever her upbringing was, but in this companionable, easygoing, relatable way. Like there are very few songs about actually being in love or even being in lust. All of her romantic partners on this album are annoying. They're losers. They're unavailable. They're (laughs) she's breaking up. She's constantly breaking up. And it's kind of like, girls like 
we know what it's like, don't we? And that's kind of the tone that's being evinced. Later on, she would get to this untouchable pop perfection or attempt it. But here she's very much trying to meet listeners where they are, I think. It's almost like a teen's perspective on these things, like who hasn't actually had sex or something. Like there's something like, yes. I, I'm ready to be sexual, but it's in this very earnest, as you said, there's no actual sex in it. She opens the record with the song, One of the Boys, which I think is an instructive song for a number of reasons. One of which is- I agree. One of the opening lines is like, I can belch the alphabet, which is like a fascinating framing of her persona, which is like, she's in this thing where she like caught between being like a tomboy and being like the most girly, feminized version of pop iconography that you could ever imagine on Teenage Dream or something like that. And this song is like about how she wants to leave behind her tomboy image and become the homecoming queen. She says, I just want to be your homecoming queen. I don't want to be this tomboy anymore. So That was a clip from the podcast Pop Pantheon. It's created and hosted by DJ Louis XIV. His guest in that episode was Daniel Daddario. This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and today I'm joined by Lindsay Weber and Bobby Finger from Who Weekly. I can hear uh, how passionate they both are. Yeah. And I think that's one of the keys to a good podcast is like the hosts have to be into it. And oh, I yeah. mean, we can all attest that we've heard many podcasts where the hosts are not into it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Uh, So, Bobby, I'm going to ask you now about the next podcast. It's one of yours. It's called This Had Oscar Buzz. What's this Mm -hmm. show about? The show is, it's near and dear to my heart because it also started in a different form. It started as a Tumblr that then transitioned into a podcast. The Tumblr was just meant to highlight movies from Oscar history that were positioned as big awards contenders that never even got a nomination. I don't know, as someone who just like loves the Oscars, like I love listening to movie people talk about movies and especially ones like Joe Reed and Chris File who kind of have that, like Lindsay was saying about DJ Louie, this encyclopedic knowledge of the Academy Awards. And it's just fun to listen to, especially this time of year when award season is really ramping up. You picked their episode about the 2014 movie Pride. Mm -hmm. Why this one? Because I love that movie so much. And Pride is a movie that both Chris and Joe really loved. And you can kind of hear it within the episode. They just love talking about it. And in my opinion, these are the best episodes when they just love a movie and they've seen it a million times each. And they love talking about all the little particulars of it. And, you know, the little things that should have been recognized by the Academy that weren't. Okay, so let's listen to some of it now. The movie Pride is about uh, the true story of an activist group called Lesbians and Gays Support the Minors. They teamed up with a Welsh town in the 1980s during the British minor strike. Let's take a listen. All right, Chris File, 60-second plot description of the 2014 movie Pride starts now. All right, so we're going back 30 years in time to the British minor strike. Meanwhile, there are there are uh, LGBTQ activists in uh, the British Isles, uh, you know, working for their own causes. They get in 
they start a group called Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners, and they are looking for partnership uh, throughout uh, the protests uh, going on in the miner strike. They uh, strike a relationship with a br- with a Welsh town. Thirty seconds, uh, and uh, they all become enmeshed and ingrained in each other's and supporting each other's mutual causes. Meanwhile, uh, they develop these close relationships. We discover that uh, certain members are already afflicted with AIDS. One young man played by George Mackay is uh, hidden by his family uh, and pulled away from the uh, town and then he eventually leaves the house. Uh, The mining strike ends. They go and show show their support for the miners and that is not forgotten because during the 1985 uh, uh, Pride Parade, the miners show up uh, to show their support to the queer community and they're all at the front of the Pride Parade. Boom, 10 seconds over. Solidarity. Well worth it. Solidarity forever. Um, uh, uh, victory to the miners. Yes. Um, Support the Labor Party. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's the, the one of the postscripts is that the Labor Party sort of adopted into their platform, um, essentially adopted gay rights into their platform. Somebody got the Labor Party on a cell phone video and had them mm-hmm. say gay rights. And they did it. Gay um, rights. We see the gay flags over there. Gay rights. <laughs> um, miners' and, rights. We see the miners' flags over there. Miners' rights. And I think it's one of those things where in this in this country, in America, for an American watching this movie, in this country that has so sort of successfully eroded labor rights in so many sectors, mm-hmm. right, has, has, has so um, uh, successfully beaten down the prominence of unions and um, for people to watch this movie in America and see the success of a labor movement. And by the way, like the minor strike in 84 and 85 did not end victoriously for the miners. Thatcher for all intents and purposes sort of like got the, got the victory over them. And it's, and again, I say this with all due caveats as like, I am not, a scholar of this period. I was a wee little toddler in real life when this was happening. I'm also a dumb American who like doesn't um uh I'm not an expert in that period in in British history, but from the context that I have read through interviews with Stephen Beresford and 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 mm-hmm. you know people talking about this movie that that minor strike is a defeat for uh for labor. And this movie is a reminder and sort of a little bit of a recapturing of that in that like there was there was success that comes out of that right a stronger mm-hmm. more unified uh worker worker base right worker environment a labor party that managed to become even more representative of the working people of mm-hmm. great britain well, so, like that whole postscript thing in this movie, that's normally a device that feels lazy or, right, you know, reductive in a way. I think in this movie, everything that it shows you throughout the movie, those postscripts are really impactful because it does, you know, show this all was not for nothing, you know. Right. And right. it's there there was a real striking of solidarity there. There was, you know, bringing people together even though the minor strike was not successful. That, you know, the efforts of LGSM was remembered and they mm-hmm. still showed up for that. Yeah. Uh, for uh, you know, queer people. 
so it's sort of... Uh, we're not a podcast that really goes through chronologically uh, to talk about a movie, but like I want to start off by talking about the way that the gay characters are sort of introduced in this movie and are shown as a community and shown as a primarily an activist community, right? We see them obviously like, you know, they go out, they have fun, but this is not a movie that like, for example, spends a lot of time talking about romantic entanglements or like like clearly there are there are strong feelings that are exist between let's say for example mike the joseph gilgan character and like uh, and mark where there's something of a longing there right there's something of mm-hmm. something unspoken there we see uh Joe, the Joe, the George Mackay character, um, sort of has his first romantic experience with a guy at the at the uh, Bronsky beat concert. We see Steph um, uh, talk about her sort of lovelorn sort of existence, right? And and she has all these exes, but uh, um, and then obviously Jonathan and Geffen are this like longtime committed couple who represent a sort of generation before these younger um, agitators or whatever. But this is a movie that first and foremost sort of talks about them as an activist community. And I love that because I just, like, you don't see that as much, right? You know what I mean? Like, you don't... um, I just, there's so much of this movie that feels like this kind of thing existed in America, but like in a totally different way and like doesn't really exist in America's cultural conception of even when like American movies about gay history talk about this period, we get like Stonewall, right? Which like doesn't feel real, which doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like you're looking at real communities or you get stuff that feels very like historical travelogue, right? Like this was... You know, this was an event that happened, and this was an event that happened, and whereas this just feels like a very um, lived-in gay, you know, friendship collective of people who are first and foremost activists. That is also, you know, I think incredibly mainstream in terms of the, you know, sentiment of it, even though it doesn't really pull i mean like i don't think it shies away from any of the like depth of it you know we've seen the ultra mainstream version of it that's a piece of but it also there is a certain level of authenticity there because like i love a a gay movie about infighting this is like this is like the mainstream bpm in a way and that like so much of that movie is so like not just about activism obviously and not just activism of this or at least an adjacent period but so much about the process of organizing and Mm -hmm. infighting being such a part of that in this movie obviously you see the lesbian group that breaks apart and forms Mm -hmm. their own group because of not being able to have their voices heard within uh lgsm even though lesbian uh people do stay a part of that group um 
Yeah, I love a movie about infighting because, like, you can't, I feel like you can't, gay, gay people and queer people are so, uh, turned into a monolith in the culture yeah. that, uh, we are never allowed to really have a pres- uh, presentation, uh, very often where it's like, well, we don't all like each other, but right. we're also right. not all tearing each other down like monsters either. Right. Um, this movie does that very well. In case it wasn't clear, they're both gay. There's a gay movie. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. Okay. That was a clip from the podcast. This had Oscar buzz. It's created and hosted by Joe Reed and Chris File. I just want to thank you both for coming on the show today. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I, I love your show. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That was Lindsay Weber and Bobby Finger. They are the creators and hosts of Who Weekly, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. All the shows you heard today were chosen by Bobby and Lindsay. If you want to know more, we've got links and more info on our website at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva with technical support from Kira Mahoney. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Crunch, crunch. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.